and welcome to Return to Regalia, an Underland Chronicles reread podcast. I'm Una. I'm John. Today we are going to be covering chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the Prophecy of Bane, in which Gregor reads the prophecy, eavesdrops on Vicus and Solovet, and meets Luke's cousins. Exciting. Are you ready? Yeah, I actually quick have a quick story to say about yeah. Gregor the Overlander that I had. So... At the school where I am doing practicum studying for my teaching degree, um, there's a library day every week. And this past week, one of my students uh, was looking for a new book to start reading for their free read. And they wanted to get a Magnus Chase book, but they were all checked out. And so I turned them in the direction of Gregor the Overlander because they hadn't read them. Oh my god! So we are now starting. We, we got another student to start on a new Underland adventure. Yay, that's so exciting! You're out here, like... Spreading the word. Promoting, yeah, you're spreading <laughs> the good word of Gregor. That's excellent. I love to hear it. I You're gonna have to give me updates on if they like it. I will. Yes. Alright, so where we last left off, Ares had just told Gregor that the rats have sworn to kill Boots. Chapter 4 begins with Gregor asking why the rats would want to kill Boots. Ares says that it's foretold in the Prophecy of Bane. Gregor remembers how, back when he first left the Underland, Luxa mentioned the Prophecy of Bane, and Gregor tried to ask Vicus about it, but he didn't get any answers. Now he tries to ask Ares, and Ares tells him to ask Vicus because he's tired of being interrupted. <laughs> They fly to Regalia and land in the High Hall to meet Vicus. He's happy to see Gregor and makes a comment about how similar he and Ares are, which is met with silence from the two Bonds. <laughs> the two are like to mix together. What's that? It's like the opposite of opposites attract. They are too similar, so they butt heads. Yeah, you're right. I think that's pretty accurate, actually. They're both very strong-willed, and they don't take shit from anyone. Both very mature yet stubborn at the same time. Yes. Vicus tries to make small talk, but Gregor just wants to know where Boots is. I love this part because it's like, I think maybe the first time in the series we finally get like Gregor just not putting up with anything Vicus like it has with his manipulative dancing around and everything. Like he's just like, no, where's my sister? You're so right. He's like, sorry, Vicus, I can't deal with your shit today. I need to see my sister. Vicus says Merith and Luxa went to go meet the crawlers, and they should all be back soon. But in the meantime, Gregor needs to read the prophecy. The three of them go to Sandwich's prophecy room, and Gregor reads the prophecy of Bane, which I will now read in full. If under fell, if over leaped, if life was death, if death life reaped, something rises from the gloom to make the underland a tomb. Hear it scratching down below, rat of long-forgotten snow. Evil cloaked in coat of white, will the warrior drain your light? What could turn the warrior weak? What do burning gnars seek? Just a barely speaking pup who holds the land of under up. Die the baby, die his heart. Die his most essential part. Die the peace that rules the hour. Gnars have their key to power. Again, we just get a lovely poem lovely from poem. Sandwich. <laughs> I love how this is like one of the few prophecy sequels that have ever been in existence. Like it's, it doesn't make any sense unless the prophecy of Grey is read first. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because we're about to get into it, but Gregor kind of asks like, 
why didn't you show me this before? Yeah. And Vicus is like, no, it, it only makes sense if you know how the first one turns out. Like, it wouldn't have actually helped you to hear this one, which I am not sure is true. But um, Vicus just likes to keep things secret. Yes, he does. Yeah, Gregor doesn't understand any of the prophecy, but he fixates on the line that says, die the baby, and he thinks of boots. Mm -hmm. He insists on going through the whole thing with Vicus immediately, and they start to analyze the poem. When he realizes the first two lines are about him leaping and Henry falling, Gregor asks why Vicus didn't show him this before, and Vicus reasons that the meaning is only clear in hindsight since the under and over in the first line could have referred to creatures other than Gregor and Henry, and the leaping and falling could have been metaphorical. He says, In truth, a human underlander literally falling to his death was not a popular interpretation. Henry never would have suspected he would die in such a way. Gregor asks why not, and Ares points out that Henry expected his bat to catch him. I like this kind of nod toward popular interpretation because I'm sure this is true like people have been trying to pick apart these prophecies for centuries so there must be a lot of scholars in regalia working on trying to figure out what these all mean and it's interesting that the thing that came true is something most people never would have considered being possible because an underland human is always caught by their bat if they fall. I wonder if, like, those interpreters are, like, considered conspiracy theorists yeah. in, the, in regalia, and, like, now they feel vindicated. Yeah, I would be. Yeah. <laughs> the next part of the prophecy describes the Bane, a legendary white rat of considerable strength and size. Vicus says, Even when he lived in the Overland, Sandwich knew tales of the white rat. Historically, one will appear every few centuries, gather other rats about it, and create a reign of terror. I'm wondering if this is something that Sandwich learned about while he was still living above ground, but he was like still making trips into the Underland? Vicus says Sandwich heard about this even when he lived in the Overland, but Sandwich must have had some sort of contact with either the creatures who live in the Underland or... I'm thinking maybe because in the first book, Vicus told a story about how Sandwich interacted with the Native Americans who would make periodic trips to the Underland. I'm wondering if he learned about the white rat from them. Mm -hmm. And then that got me on this whole tangent of thinking because I had been operating under the assumption that Sandwich and the first Regalians were the first humans that the Underland creatures interacted with. But now I think it's possible, like, the more I think about it, it's possible that the animals were talking to the Native Americans also. Right. So I'm wondering, like, what the relationship between animals and humans was like back then. And I'm just, like, really fascinated by the possibility of Sandwich being this, like, crazy cult leader who was like, no, I'm gonna live underground. Yeah. Like, even when he's heard all of these, like, stories about giant animals, apparently. Like, that's pretty wild. I, f first off, I feel like it's very possible that the animals in the Underland would have been able, like, they, it wasn't like it was sealed up before Sandwich, so they would have been able to come up to the surface, similar to how oh. they get up and, up and down now, right? So, I hadn't considered the fact that the 
large animals would have come up to the overland. That's cool. Because I feel like, yeah, clearly they live in the underland, so it's not like they would be like regularly going back and forth. But I mean, they are like, they, they all dig and fly, and I feel like they'd be able to have that adventurous nature in them. Yeah. That's a fun speculation. So I guess that's a possibility. I guess my other thing for Sandwich was what when did he start having his prophecies, his visions? Because he could have started having those and that's how he first thought of the possibility of the Bane existing. I think that in the first book, Vicus says that Sandwich left England and came to America with his cult because of his visions. Mm -hmm. And here it seems that Sandwich, because Vika says Sandwich knew tales of the white rat. So that makes it seem like he had heard stories right. and not made it up him, himself. The heard about instead of like he saw. That does that is that is true. Yeah. But that is really interesting about the possibility that the animals could have been coming to the overland, because I really had never considered that. Because who would have who would he have heard it from? beforehand it would have had to be from the native americans and how the how would the native americans have heard it they would have had to have interacted with the rats yeah see i'm wondering if that's the case though like were the humans living above ground but taking trips to the underland did they hear these stories either from the animals or did they see the giant white rat themselves and then relay that information to sandwich yeah it's just like all this prequel information that we'll never have, but it's fascinating. Sandwich, the mysterious colonizer. Yeah. Vicus explains that the warrior is the only person who can defeat the Bane, and that's why the rats have been concealing the Bane. Of course, us rereading it, we know that the Bane was actually just born recently, and they're concealing him because he's still a pup. Yes. Although I, I bet the prophecy is, is an added bonus for why they're concealing it, but it's mainly because it's just a helpless little baby. Right. The third stanza of the prophecy mentions a, quote, barely speaking pup. Because pup means baby, they interpret these lines to be about Boots, who is the only baby Gregor is close to. They read the last stanza that includes, die the baby, die his heart, and Vicus explains how the rats think that if they kill Boots, it will break Gregor somehow. And that doesn't Gregor say, yeah, they're right. He absolutely would right. be broken if Boots was killed. Yeah, exactly. That's his baby sister. She really is his, like, weak spot. Yeah. Gregor asks why Boots couldn't just stay in the Overland where she was safe, and Vicus says that she isn't safe in the Overland. He reveals that the small cockroaches have been keeping an eye on Gregor's family, but the small rats have been doing the same. The reason the two rats that chased Gregor in the tunnels were so close to the surface is because they planned to kill Boots that day. Vicus tells Gregor that they can go home if they want to, but Boots will be safer in Regalia. And I just think this is such a classic Vicus yeah. move. He's like, well, there's nothing stopping you from going home if you want to, but here's this reason that you should definitely stay in the Underland. I also don't fully know if that's accurate, that Boots would be safer in the Underland. I feel like she's going to be at risk either way, but at least it's harder for the rats to get to her up above. Right, right. Well, I mean, I don't doubt the danger of the small rats, 
but at least the giant rats wouldn't be able to get to her. Yeah, at least the small rats are small. I feel like it's just Ficus wanting to hold all the cards as per usual. Right. I think it's definitely partly that. But in the third book, we do get a scary scene at the beginning yeah, with the rats like clawing through the walls and yeah. stuff. So that's like a real threat. I wonder, I bet Solovet's also very happy with them staying as well, which we'll get to in a bit. But this, right? I love how this is where we first get some hints of Solovet's true persona. Exactly. Yeah. Gregor points out that the Regalians took boots in part to protect themselves, and Vicus admits that he's right. I was thinking that they probably were gonna pull some shit like this to get Gregor back in the Underland anyway. Yeah. Because they need him to complete this quest to kill the Bane, even if the prophecy didn't mention a baby and if they didn't assume that it meant boots, they would still pull some shit like this. Like, I wouldn't put it past them to use boots as a trap to get Gregor. How many of the books start with Gregor willingly going to the Underland? Technically, in the third book, he goes willingly, but it's after being threatened. Right. And then by the fourth book, he is taking regular trips to the Underland uh, to see his sick mom. And they're down there for Hazard's birthday. And then they start the fifth book in the Underland. Right. It's just, this isn't like Camp Half-Blood where he wants to go back to the magical world. He he would rather that his family never interacted with this place. I know, his right? His father, himself, his sisters, like he would have, he could have lived his life in ignorance and been much more content. Yeah, no, Nate and I were having a similar conversation last episode. We were actually comparing it to Harry Potter because even though Voldemort sucks, Harry loves going to Hogwarts. He views it as like, an opening into a new world that he's very happy to be in. Yeah, and it's an escape from his mundane exactly. world. But Gregor just wants to be left alone. Yeah. And you're right that Percy Jackson is the same way. Like, he looks forward to going to camp, even though being the chosen one is, like, super dangerous and he's totally in danger fighting these monsters and it sucks. Like, he still loves going to camp to see his friends. And Gregor is not yet at that point with the Underland. Yeah. It's like the uh, the Pevensies in the Chronicles of Narnia. Have you had the Chronicles of Narnia? I can't remember. A really, really long, long time, time ago. ago. Spoilers, the last book has three of the Pevensies staying in Narnia, uh, but one of them, Susan, does not. She leaves Narnia behind um, and stays in the, in the human world. Okay. Um, and uh, Gregor is Susan Pevensey. He <laughs> is very happy just being on... Yeah, like you said, being in the mundane. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That is very Gregor to just have to return to... Well, Gregor does have to return to the human world, or the overland, yeah. the mundane world, but he also would prefer it, I think. Maybe not by the last book. Right, but in these first... In the first solid half of the series, for yeah. sure. He just wishes he could go home and get away from all the danger, even though his life above ground does suck it's still way better than his life as the chosen one in the underworld yeah underland and, and even though like his family is not very well is it's not they're not well off they're not in good financial positioning so many of their problems are because of the underland invading their world to begin with right like if if gregor's dad had never fallen down the hole 
they would be totally fine, I feel like. Yeah, they would be in a much better like place. Like, the occurrence, the current place is only because of the underworld, the underland itself. I keep saying underworld. I it's keep maybe, saying underworld. Maybe a, maybe a signal of something. <laughs> That's what we get for reading too much Percy Jackson. Yeah. But yeah, it's just usually the magical world that the child protagonist enters is, like, viewed as a wondrous thing. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the only ones where it's really not. It's yeah. much more flawed from the get from the get go. Right, exactly. So Boots comes in riding on Temp's back as joyful as ever. And when Gregor thinks about how powerless she is and how powerless he is to protect her, he agrees to stay in the Underland until the prophecy is complete. And that is how we end chapter four. It takes us right into chapter five, where Boots says hi to everyone in the prophecy room. Gregor tells Temp that he should give him a heads up next time before running off with Boots. <laughs> Temp doesn't understand and asks if the Overlander hates the crawlers. Gregor tries to explain that he was just scared because he didn't know where Boots was, but that just confuses Temp more. Gregor decides to drop it and instead tells Temp he did a good job protecting Boots from the rats. I identify very strongly with Temp in this scene. <laughs> Luxa appears, and we get a little description of her. Her silvery blonde hair has grown out a little. She's a bit taller, and there are circles under her violet eyes that Gregor interprets as markers of stress. She greets Gregor, and when he asks her how she is, she says she's fine and shoves at the crown on her head. Gregor doesn't think she's been sleeping well, and she doesn't look happy but she's maintained her signature arrogant half-smile. I just realized Luxa, there's like a direct parallel of Luxa to Annabeth from Percy Jackson to Astrid from How to Train Your Dragon. You are so correct. They're all very similar in attitude. Yeah, and they're all blonde. And they're all blonde, <laughs> at least in certain versions. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I just, right. I Yeah, and they all have a... I guess... The only- I was gonna say they all have a doofier boyfriend, but Gregor's not really doofy. Yeah, yeah. Gregor's- Gregor's kind of bucks that trend. He's a little doofy in these chapters. That's true. But yeah, you're right. I always thought that Annabeth and Luxa were very similar, and I have also thought about how How to Train Your Dragon is very much like the Underland Chronicles, because they're, like, riding around on giant creatures. Yeah. I always thought that if they made a movie- about Gregor, they would have to do it in the same style as How to Train Your Dragon. You, do you think it would be animated? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I I also agree. That's That would be my dream adaptation, is like a, a 3D animated Gregor. Maybe not by DreamWorks, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they can recapture that magic for another series. Yeah. <laughs> Luxa comments on Gregor's return, and Gregor says he didn't have a choice. She says, No, you and I never seem to have much choice. This harkens back to the argument she had with Vicus in the first book about how she couldn't abandon the quest even when she didn't want to travel with Ripred, because she has a responsibility to Regalia. I love that line. Luxa is so world-weary at this point. Yeah. She's just, yeah, like as Gregor said, she's just tired of life. Yeah, and Gregor can relate. Yeah. Yeah, I love how she is always shoving at the crown on her head. I think the line is, it's like she wanted to shove it off her mm-hmm. head. 
Which she probably does, because if she did, that would mean her parents were alive. Oh, yeah, you're right. She the, That's the only reason she has it. That's true. Well, I mean, maybe she would still be wearing it, even though, because she's like the princess. Right. But, but yeah, no, you're right. She wouldn't have to have all this responsibility if yeah. they were still alive. I hadn't considered the fact that some of her frustration is coming from the fact that she wishes that her parents were still around to take care of things so that she wouldn't have to. Yeah. But yeah, she's definitely feeling the stress of her position. Luxa says the Overlanders will have to bathe, dine, and sleep because Solovet wants Gregor to start training in the morning. Vicus is surprised by this, and Luxa fakes being surprised that he didn't know. So here we're seeing some of the tension between Vicus and Luxa, and between Vicus and Solovet. I won't lie also. Like, this is one of the times where I'm definitely on Vicus's side, because he's against Solovet in this case, mm -hmm. on the matter we'll cover in a bit, but it is kind of nice to see Vicus get a taste of his own medicine. Right. Of being left in the dark for once instead of the other way around. Exactly. Luxa says she'll see Gregor and Ares tomorrow on the field, and the Overlanders go to bathe. At one point, Gregor runs out wearing a towel to tell the Underlanders not to burn their clothes because they'll be expensive to replace. At first, the Underlander guy is hesitant, but he relents when Gregor suggests that the clothes be stored in the museum, which is full of Overland stuff anyway. After bath time, Gregor and Boots eat a big dinner and head to bed. Gregor thinks about how, on one hand, he's grateful for the Underlanders having rescued Boots from the rats, but on the other, he's resentful for being dragged back into their mess. Gregor can't sleep, so he gets up to walk around the palace. He notes that all the doors to the other people's living quarters have curtains over them, and he figures it's because stone doors aren't practical, and the only wood door is the one to Sandwich's prophecy room. He passes by a curtain door and hears Vicus and Solovet arguing inside. Vicus is telling her that she should have told him about wanting Gregor to go through training, and Solovet is saying it was inevitable that Gregor learned to fight. Vicus makes the argument that Gregor doesn't want to fight because he refused Sandwich's sword at the end of book one. Solovet points out that the prophecies call Gregor the warrior, not the peacemaker which is planting a tiny seed for the last book in which yeah. we hear the prophecy about the peacemaker. But right now we don't even realize it's a yeah. prophecy she's referencing, which is very cool. That, that long game is impressive. Yeah. Again, I feel like a good chunk of these little things you're pointing out had to have been planned out. Yeah. Because they're so... They, they fit together so perfectly. I know, right? And I'm usually not... Usually I don't give authors benefit of the doubt with that sort of thing because it's really easy to see the cracks in those long-term plans. I'm usually like, I feel like this is a happy coincidence, not, not with Suzanne Collins for some reason. Yeah, I feel like she really did put all of this in knowing where it was going to go. Like between this thing about the Peacemaker and in one of the first chapters, we hear about Lizzie loving puzzles and about her her figuring out the anagram of Gregor and Gorger, which ends up being how she solves the Code of Claw in the very last book. And I just think that Suzanne Collins must have had an idea of where that was going to have dropped that in so early. I'm like super impressed that she found a way to include it so seamlessly in like the beginning of the second book when it's not relevant until literally like the last half of the last book. Yeah. And not having things planned out is not at all a bad thing. Like, it's definitely, you, you are definitely able to adapt 
as you go along with Gladden. Like I, I am almost positive that Gladden did not have the the great prophecy planned out when he started Percy Jackson, or the fact, well, like when he named when he has the prophecy of seven in Last Olympian. There's no way he had thought out what all the implications of that were. He definitely came up with some of those results as he was going along, and it still works out. Well, at least the great prophecy works out well. <laughs> but um, it's also impressive to see the forethought that's present here. Yeah, I think I agree about Rick Riordan not quite planning everything out ahead. I mean, I don't want to like compare them, but I think Suzanne Collins does do it more successfully here, like planting all of these clues. Mm-hmm. Because I don't really feel like that's Riordan's like, strength. That's not what he's trying to do. And mm-hmm. so that means that sometimes... It doesn't work out, but when it does, it's really good. Yeah, it's the same thing with Collins. Like, I can think of other things in some of her other books where I'm like, this was clearly planned out, but I don't think the destination is justified based on the journey we got. Mm-hmm. Even though it's clear that some of the things she had were like... Like, she's publicly said, I think, that the death of... I forget, how have we spoiled things for the Hunger Games trilogy? Yes. Okay. Wait, before you say it, though, yeah. I will say, like, spoilers for the last Hunger Games book, Got if it. you haven't read it. Yes, you know where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, the death of Prim in Mockingjay. She has said she knew from the beginning of the series that Prim was going to die. Yes. And I am of the opinion that that ending kind of hamstrung the series as a whole, because I feel like the way things were resolved or not resolved didn't justify that death. It didn't seem a satisfying conclusion to the story. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that planning doesn't work out either, Mm -hmm. but other times it definitely does. And I think the Underland series is a perfect example of that, where having things meticulously thought out and structured can be beneficial. It just depends on the circumstance. Yeah. I am also, I mean, I haven't read Hunger Games since like middle school. So I think maybe if I reread it, I would have a different opinion, but I was also pretty like disappointed with the quality of Mockingjay when I read it. Yeah, the ending just, like, didn't hit quite as hard as the Gregor ending does. Yeah. Anyway. Vicus tells Solovet that Gregor could be a warrior who uses weapons that the Regalians aren't familiar with, and he reminds her that Gregor did well without a sword on the last quest. Yeah, exactly. Solovet fires back that Gregor did ask for a sword on the quest, and maybe he only refused Sandwich's sword at the end of the book because he thought he was done with the Underland. The argument ends with Solovet telling Vicus, I think that if you send him out unarmed this time, you guarantee his death. Gregor leaves after that and makes it back to his room, but he doesn't get much sleep and has disturbing dreams. Yeah, I love this argument between Vicus and Solovet. Vicus is, I think, in a lot of ways, the vehicle for the theme of this whole series of like, war is not the answer and fighting is never a good thing and there's always a better way to handle things. And Vicus is treated as kind of naive throughout the whole series by other characters. Like even Luxa makes fun of Vicus for the way that he thinks about things. And I think at some points he is pretty naive. Yeah. But this argument that he has with Solovet is so emblematic of the main struggle of the books and kind of the main conflict that Gregor is participating in. Because Solovet is the leader of the Regalian military Mm -hmm. and she knows that 
Gregor is the warrior and has to kill the Bane and like he needs to learn how to use a sword because this is the world that they live in and this is the situation that Gregor's in. And Vicus kind of just wants to keep sheltering him from that, which is like noble of him, but maybe not the most realistic. Although I will say, when you're up against someone who Vicus, I think, accurately insinuates does like to fight. Yeah. Uh, I think anyone will look naive, although he is, I think, also naive. It's, when I was reading this, I'm like, these two are so dissimilar. Yeah. They have, like, it seems very little in common. I'm, I wonder, were they both always on these, like, kind of opposing viewpoints as extreme as they are at this point? Or has, like, life in regalia and the struggles they've been through, like, pushed them both to the outside of their views? Yeah, that's such a good question. They've definitely been together for a really long time. Right. But I wonder if they got together maybe before Solovet was the leader of the military, mm. or... I mean, they were obviously together for a while before Luke's parents were killed, for right. example. Right, and before, like, Hamnet went crazy and then ran away and all of that tragedy. So they've been through a lot together, and I wonder if... When they first started out, they weren't as different as they are now. Like you said, like maybe the climate of the Underland has changed and thus <laughs> put a strain on their relationship. There's so many characters. Like, I, I can't imagine what Luxo was like before everything that's happened in the series. Ten years ago, what was baby Luxo like? We, yeah. We'll never know. It's so tragic. She's a completely different person now because of everything she's had to go through. That's probably the same for Solovet and Vikas. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I would love a prequel with like a young Solovet and Vicus and a younger Ripred. It may be, it, I think it might have been too long since the series, but there's always a possibility that Suzanne will go, Collins will go back and revisit this like Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Right. I think in an interview she did say if she was ever going to write another thing, it would be in the same universe as Hunger Games or mm-hmm. Underland Chronicles, which I mean, I can't even think about that without like freaking out yeah. like imagine if she wrote something else in the underlying chronicles series i would i would start crying <laughs> i can't decide what would be more exciting revisiting the underlying chronicles or like if she started another franchise mm-hmm. and if and it had the same amount of like passion and world building that both the underlying chronicles and the hunger games oh had. yeah that would be ridiculously cool yeah i would love to get to know a new world that she creates and I mean, part of me is like, no, don't touch Gregor. Like, don't go back to it. It'll just ruin it. If the, if if she does like a fifteen years later sequel to Code of Claw and catches up on Gregor, and then like he goes back, it's gonna be the most bittersweet thing because you know it's gonna suck for him. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I read some fan fictions that are basically that story, right. and it is brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so even if Suzanne Collins doesn't write anymore for the Gregor universe, we always have the fans creating the content for us. <laughs> anyway, let's go to chapter six. Chapter six starts with Gregor waking up exhausted in the morning. He eats breakfast and leaves Boots with the Underlanders while he goes to training. He doesn't know where to go at first, then figures training must be held at the arena he saw when he first came to Regalia. Because the palace has no door on the ground floor, Gregor has to get some underlanders to lower him down on a platform. 
They're surprised that his bat didn't come to get him, and Gregor says Ares must have forgotten. At the mention of Ares, the guards exchange a judgmental look. Gregor is still mad at Ares, but he tries to defend Ares by saying he forgot too. This is something you and Nathan talked about in last week's podcast, I remember, about the dynamic between Ares and Gregor, and how I think this conversation really shows Ares is still kind of a pariah mm-hmm. down under. Like, he's still viewed as, like, essentially an exile, or like a bat who deserved to have been exiled and was only saved by a stoke of luck. Right. Like, there is no real welcoming for him here. Yeah. So that probably has made him even more surly and unhappy with his lot in life. Right. And it doesn't help that Gregor hasn't been around, even though Gregor saved him because he's the warrior and he's bonded to the warrior now. If the warrior isn't around, that makes it harder. And I bet Ares probably resents Gregor a little bit for bonding with him and then leaving. Yeah. Like, Ovo is not an unpleasant bat, but even if Ovo were, like, the meanest bat she wouldn't get any guff from anyone because she's the bond with Luxa. Right. Like, Luxa's there, like, no one's gonna criticize Luxa's bond that, but Ares doesn't have anyone to back him up. Yeah, exactly. Even though he has this status of being the warrior's bond, like, Gregor isn't around to remind people. But here he's sticking up for Ares, even though they're fighting. I like that even when Gregor is upset with someone, he still got this notion of what is fair or what is mean to say about someone behind their back and Gregor still has this sense of loyalty to Ares even though he's upset with him. They have been through a lot together and they did save each other's lives and even though he thinks that Ares is a jerk, he wants to defend him to these underlanders, which I think is really nice. After Gregor is lowered 200 feet to the ground, he starts to walk through the city toward the arena. Regalians stare at him, but some nod or bow when he meets their eyes. Gregor realizes they must expect him to kill the Bane, and wonders how many soldiers they'll send with him to help. Which is ironic, because they're really not going to send very many no. at all. <laughs> they're like, you're the warrior, you can, beat the, you can beat the Bane. You've got to do it all yourself. Yeah, you're capable, you're the hero. But Vicus hasn't. Vicus didn't bother to say that to Gregor. No. So Why would he? Gregor just assumes that he's going to get an army to go with him. Well, let's send a 12-year-old out alone. Yeah. He's still 12, he's 11. He's one of the two. He's 11. He's still 11. Yeah. Oh, Gregor. <laughs> he reaches the arena and sees underlanders of all ages doing stretches on the field, which is familiar to Gregor because he does track. Merith greets him with a big hug and they go to join a group of kids Gregor's age. As they cross the field, Gregor spots a group of children no older than six years old drilling with swords, which is pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Like real sword? Like sharp swords? Yeah. I would get it if maybe it was like wooden practice swords, but really? Six-year-olds with sharp blades? It's a youngling situation. Yeah, god. Gregor stands next to Luxa as Merith resumes class and leads them through various exercises. Finally, they run laps around the arena, and Gregor is the only one able to keep pace with Merith. After that, they do gymnastics, which Gregor isn't very good at. 
He falls on his back after a roll, and Luxa offers him a hand up along with some gymnastic advice, which is cute. Yeah, this is a nice change of pace from their first gymnastics arena interaction. Yes, yeah. The narration says, Gymnasts were always giving you helpful tips, like you could actually win the battle with gravity if you just concentrated hard enough. Which is such a good way to describe Luxa. Like, yeah. She's so determined and focused that she can actually defy the laws of physics. Luxa performs a series of flips and lands gracefully on her feet, and then she tries to teach Gregor how to do a cartwheel. While she does this, she catches sight of five kids standing at the entrance of the arena, and her face falls. She explains that they're her cousins, but not her royal cousins like Henry and Nerissa, who she's related to on her father's side. These five are from her mother's side, and Luxa says they aren't royalty, but they really wish they were. She says, they make fun of Nerissa, of her gift and her frailty. No, we do not, that is, I do not like them. Gregor notes that Luxa must still be getting used to not referring to herself and Henry as one unit, which is very sad. Yeah. Luxa greets her cousins and introduces them to Gregor, and we get brief descriptions of them. Howard is around 16 and looks like he works out a lot. Just a side note, Howard is probably tied for my favorite character with Merith. If I recall correctly in the future, like, he's just kind of the normal one. Yeah. Like, he's the one who's like, oh my god, you little snots, my siblings, they're so mean. Yeah, yeah. That's the impression I got when I was reading it here. Yeah, so. Howard is such a a good guy. He kind of steps up as a brother figure to Luxa in later books. Which, definitely a step up from Henry. Yeah, yeah. He's like, um, he's like a Henry upgrade. He's kind of a parallel to Henry in a lot of ways as like an older cousin, but he's much nicer. Yeah. Stellavet is around 13 and is very pretty. Mm -hmm. Hero and Kent are younger twins, and the youngest is a five-year-old girl whose name sounds like Chimney. I think it's funny that we never actually learn this girl's full name. I was going to ask about that because I don't remember, because not all of these cousins get like much in the way of characterization in the series but i don't remember i remember um howard but i don't really remember stella Beth, and so i definitely don't remember chimney yeah i think all of these cousins except for howard we never see them again after this scene mm -hmm. i think this is literally the only time they show up and chimney howard at one point later in this book refers to her as chim but we never learn her real name Maybe her name really is Chimney, and Gregor just thought he had Miss Hood, because who would name their kid Chimney? Right? <laughs> I wonder if we could figure out what it is. Like, if there's any other, like, old English names that, yeah. sa that start with Chim or sound similar to Chimney. Yeah, I wonder if there's any, like, Shakespeare characters. I I'll, I'd need to do some research. Howard greets Gregor politely, but Stellavet ends up making a cruel comment about Henry. She says... Luxa is something of an expert on rats, no matter how many legs they have. The narration says, Gregor knew kids like that. Kids who would take something really awful in your life and use it against you. And there was nothing you could say about it because the thing was true. That's just like so real. Yeah. We all know a kid like this. Yeah. They hope with a smile on their face. Yeah, yeah. Stellava is so like 
the whole time she's just like got this sweet little voice i mean the audiobook gives her this like sweet voice and she's just acting so friendly and making these jokes but in reality she's being super cruel howard is embarrassed by stellavette but she and the twins are amused Gregor asks where they're from, and we learn that the cousin's father is in charge of the Fount, which is a kind of suburb of Regalia. I was thinking that their dad must be another one of Luxa's mom's brothers, along with Hamnet, because Luxa is royal on her dad's side, and that's the side that Henry's on. But then Bicus and Solovet's children are Judith, Luxa's mom, and Hamnet, and I'm pretty sure. Howard's dad or mom, I guess. It could have been either of them. But I think it would make sense if like Judith came from the family that runs the fount and then married into royalty. Like that seems like something that they would do. Like, oh, like this princess can marry into the into the royal family. That just seems very like old English royalty to me. Yeah, because Luxus says she says they're not royalty. Yeah. But maybe that just means they weren't born into it. I think that she means that the king of regalia was her dad and the fount has their own government like mm-hmm. howard's dad runs the fount and he's not the king of the fount but he's like i guess a lord or whatever yeah. you would call that a duke mm-hmm. a duke for some reason i had thought that judith and hamnet were the only siblings but i guess they had another sibling who is one of howard's parents Gregor asks if the Fount deals with many rats, and Stellavette tries to say they're afraid of their fighting abilities, but Howard admits there's no reason for the rats to invade. Gregor asks if Stellavette has ever even seen a rat, and when she insists that she has, Chim points out that that rat was dead. Gregor won, Fount Cousin Zero. Yeah, that was... It was a satisfying conversation. I know, right? I like the solidarity that goes and goes between Gregor and Luxa, too. Yeah, yeah. I like how Gregor just immediately, I mean, Stellavet makes her nature pretty clear, but Gregor doesn't even trust Howard in this moment, even though Howard is being polite, because Luxa said that like she doesn't like them and Gregor is immediately on her side like yeah if you don't like these cousins I don't like them either I'm with you like I trust you that they're terrible (laughs) so Gregor's just like ride or die with Luxa right now (laughs) Luxa and Gregor walk away and she thanks him for standing up to Stellavet Gregor tells her go ahead Luxa do one of those flip things do the fanciest wildest one you can think of (laughs) Which is so cute. It's just like, he's telling her, like, fuck those guys. You're amazing. You deserve to show off. So go do, like, the most amazing thing you can think of. I love that so much. Just the idea that he's like, I know that you're better than them. We both know that you're better than them. So go show them. It's so good. So Luxa does her super impressive gymnastics routine, which is very satisfying because people like applaud. Merith calls everyone together for sword practice. He gets a sword for Gregor and Gregor is relieved that he doesn't feel any different holding a sword because he doesn't like fighting and the warrior stuff makes him nervous. I don't know if this means that he was worried that he'd get anxious while holding the sword because he's scared of having to use it, or if he was afraid that he would enjoy holding it. Mm. 
Like, is he afraid of his own capability of fighting? He does talk soon when he starts doing the blood balls Mm -hmm. activity that he does kind of like he he kind of likes the idea of trying it out. Right. So I feel like it's more likely the like the the former of where he just doesn't want to be seen as the warrior Mm -hmm. at this point. And maybe it becomes that more later on once like he realizes, oh, I don't know how I feel about how much I enjoy this fighting. Right. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Like he's afraid of these people's expectations of him being a warrior. And he's afraid that he'll have to be the warrior, but he's also afraid that he is the warrior. He's afraid of the expectations and the reality. Yeah, yeah. He's afraid that he will be good at being a warrior, which he doesn't want to be. I love that internal conflict for him. (laughs) Merith shows Gregor some basic moves, and after a while, he announces it's time for cannon practice. Luxa explains to Gregor that they're small cannons used to hone a swordfighter's speed and accuracy. Three cannons are wheeled onto the field along with a barrel of waxy golf ball-sized things full of red liquid called blood balls. Each of the three cannons is loaded with five blood balls, and Howard stands between them while Underlanders start cranking the cannons. The blood balls fire at Howard, and he hits 7 out of 15 with his sword, which is apparently a fairly good number. Some other students only hit 1 or 2. Luxa ties with Howard 7, and Stellavet gets 5. When everyone except Gregor has taken a turn, Stellavet asks if Gregor will try it. He agrees and takes his place between the cannons. The narration says, He heard Merith give the order to fire. And then a strange thing happened. As the first ball left the cannon in front of him, the arena, the underlanders, almost everything around him seemed to mute and grow indistinct. He was aware only of the blood balls flying toward him from all directions. When it's over, Gregor's surroundings come back into focus, and he sees that he's hit all 15 blood balls. And that is the end of chapter 6. It's such a good scene. It's just like so satisfying as a kid because first we meet Luxa's snotty cousins and we immediately hate them and want Luxa and Gregor to be better than them. And then we get Luxa doing her cool gymnastics thing, which is just like super cool. And then this is like incredible. Like Gregor gets all 15 and Howard and Luxa only got seven each it's practically unheard of and the whole reason that Stella Vett is like egging him on to do this is because like she wants him to embarrass himself she thinks he's gonna fail yeah and he doesn't even like expect to get any and Merith is even like only as an exercise like you don't actually have to do this and like no one expects you to do well and then he totally like blows everyone else out of the water it's so mind-blowing as a kid reading this you're like oh yeah take that Stella Vet. if they do an adaptation of Gregor and they get to the second book and they have this scene the idea of Stella Vett's, uh, like cruel smile dropping from her face yes. as he schools everyone oh my god that would be so sick yeah No, Stella Vett, like, never comes back in the series. Mm. She's basically just in this chapter to be mean and then to get 
shown up by Luke and Gregor, yeah. which is just awesome. I mean, I guess, yeah, there's not really a ton of narrative purpose to her besides mm-hmm. this moment of glory. Yeah, and it really is glorious. Like, this is one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. Like, I talk about some scenes in this series just being so evocative and, like, iconic, and this is definitely one of them. This is a scene, like a quintessential Underland Chronicles scene to me, is Gregor hitting all 15 blood balls. It's just so impressive. It's such a good twist, and it foreshadows so much that's going to go on later in the series. It's just awesome on all levels. I'll never get enough of this scene. I love to read it every time. I think Gregor's going to have a sword for his quest. Yeah. This. If there was ever any doubt, it's dissipated now. Yes, he is no doubt the warrior. Not just any warrior, he is the The warrior. And soon we will find out about his superpowers. Yes. His rager powers. It's not echolocation. (laughs) Not not yet. (laughs) That superpower comes in the the last book. Until then, it's almost a weakness. Yes, exactly. But yeah, this was a really fun trio of chapters. We got the prophecy, which is always fun. We got some tension with Vicus and Solovet. And then we've got the Fan- blood balls. We've got fantasy sports, which is always a favorite yes. of mine. Yeah. No, ma- no matter the franchise or, or story, it's always fun. Yeah. I wonder how Suzanne Collins came up with this blood balls blood thing. Balls. I wonder, I mean, this could be a thing that real people do. There's definitely... What is what does Gregor compare it to? He compares it to another activity that he's done. Was it ski? It was. It wasn't ski shooting, was it? It was a different. Oh. It was a, a different like he, sports activity that he'd done before that he enjoyed. He says that it's like the carnival games that he plays, where you have to like knock over bottles with a baseball That's or something. It but it's like actually way harder when you're actually doing it. Right. But it looks easy, and that's why he's like. Well, it looks fun, and I'll try it, but I bet it's going to be way harder. Yeah, and it wasn't. Yeah, it really was that easy. Yeah. It's also so interesting how much quicker the jump into the mission is in this one compared to the first book. Right. Like, there's no more real need to set up anything, so they can start on the questing a lot quicker. Yeah, it's like, Boots is kidnapped, we're in the Underland, we've got the prophecy right away, we're analyzing it right here in the prophecy room, and we are going into training it's it's really quick compared to the first one i think because there's a lot of gregor has to try to escape first in the first book and and then we have to go to the different creatures lands to gather all the help for the quest they have to establish about gregor's dad being kidnapped by the rats right and this one they can just cut to the chase exactly i really like it (laughs) the middle three books are really my favorites in the series I I think I mentioned this when I was first reading the books. I'm of the opinion, this is one of the only series I've read where I think each book is, like, I like more than the previous one. Yeah. Like, I think they just get better and better. And so, I don't know if Code of Claw is still going to be my favorite after the reread, but mm-hmm. that was how it was. But then, like, even the first book, which I like, like, they just keep getting more yeah. and more captivating. Because it just keeps getting more and more growth and, like, planning out of how the missions are structured and the stakes just get higher and higher and it's such a thrill. Yeah. But for now, thanks so much for joining me, John. Yes, of course, as always. Next week's episode is going to cover chapters 7, 8, and 9. 
Don't forget to follow us on Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at Return to Regalia. If you have questions, theories, or things that we missed, send them to us at returntoregalia at gmail.com or drop them right in the YouTube comments. Thank you for listening, and until next time, fly you high.